So we're continuing to work chronologically through the Old Testament. And tonight, finally, we're in Joshua. It's uh, been a long time that we've been following the Israelites through the wilderness. And as I uh, was drawing your attention to a few weeks ago, even though the span of time was somewhat short in history, we've basically been hearing that Moses is about to die now for really a few months just because we only take a little section of text each Sunday night. And so it's been a good while now that we've expected Moses to die. And last week, we finally got to the text where Moses did die. And so that is behind us now, and we're in the book of Joshua. And it begins with a very blunt announcement uh, from the Lord to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Look, it's the facts. Moses is dead. What we see in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, is a number of imperatives, which are things that Joshua must do, as well as a number of indicatives, which indicate what God has done. These are the theological terms that are typically used for those two categories. Imperatives and indicatives. Let's look and see here what imperatives are in verses 1 to 9. Moses, my servant, is dead. Okay, so what now? Rise and go over the Jordan. Verse 2. Be strong and courageous. Verse 6. Be very strong and courageous. Verse 7. Being careful to do according to the law. Verse 7. Do not turn from it to right, to the right or to the left. Verse 7. Meditate on the law so as to be careful to do it. Verse 8. Be strong and courageous. Verse 9. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Verse 9. Alright? The Israelites are on the east of the Jordan. They've already conquered Sihon and Og and the kings that lived over there. They're about to go west of the Jordan. Moses, their great leader, has just died. Now Joshua is at the helm, humanly speaking. And the commands that are given have really hardly anything to do with military conquest. Be brave, cross the Jordan, and stay focused on the law of God. Right? Let me go through those again real quick. Rise, go over the Jordan, cross the Jordan. Look, you could do that. Right? I could do that. Literally just cross the river. Be strong and courageous. Be very strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to the law. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Meditate on the law so as to be careful to do it. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. What about arm yourself? What about marshal the troops? What about get them together every morning for a rigorous calisthenics workout of push-ups and sit-ups and burpees? Prepare yourselves. You must go over west of the Jordan and conquer. You see how very little there is of that? Listen to the indicatives. Verse 3. Take these people into the land that I am giving them. (laughs) No man shall stand before you. 
Verse 5. You shall give... You shall cause this people to inherit the land, which might sound like thou shalt do this. In other words, an imperative. But the sense of it here is, don't be afraid because don't worry, you are going to cause this people to inherit the land. It's God promising that, yeah, Joshua is going to be the guy to bring them into the land. You may have good success wherever you go. Verse 7. You will make your way prosperous and have good success. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is what God promises to do here. It's very, it's very interesting that the imperatives are not military imperatives. The imperatives are not combative imperatives. God undertakes in the indicatives to give these people land, to cause them through Joshua to inherit the land that He will make their way prosperous and give them success. That they will have success wherever they go. That He will be with them wherever they go. Here's the relationship. If Joshua will do what God requires, God will be faithful to His Word to do what He has said is going to happen. We see this very, very... Clearly, in verse 7, for example. Be strong and very courageous, being careful not to do, or pardon me, being careful to do according to the law, to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. In other words, by not turning from it to the right or to the left, you will have success. Implicitly, If you do turn from it to the right hand or to the left, you will not have success. Right? This is the relationship here. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Verse 8. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then, when you are careful to do all that is written in it, you will make your way prosperous And then you will have good success. So the relationship here between the indicatives and the imperatives is that if Joshua will simply trust the Lord and do what the Lord says, then the Lord is going to make sure that this mission of crossing westward over the Jordan and into the promised land is successful. That it meets with success. The Lord is going to fight for that. This is... This goes right back. Right back to the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience in Deuteronomy 28-30. to If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And it goes on, and I'm going to read from verse 7 of Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. What will cause the enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you? 
a regimen of push-ups and sit-ups and burpees, preparing yourselves for war and making sure you have the best swords and the best spears, furnish yourselves with the best equipment? No. What will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated for you? If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today. 28, Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments or statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Down to verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You should go out one way against them, in other words, as a united army, and flee seven ways before them. This is, what we're reading in Joshua, is God reiterating to Joshua what He has already said. And He is reassuring Joshua, if you trust Me, if you walk with Me, if you obey Me, don't worry. I will fight for you. I will cause your enemies to scatter and to flee before you. This is why the imperatives are not Joshua, arm yourselves for battle. This is why the imperatives are not Joshua, gather the men together to train. Because it is not going to be by the arm of flesh that the Israelites cross over westward into Canaan and take over. Incidentally, this is why God repeats several times, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. This is why the people, (laughs) interestingly, the Lord tells Joshua three times, be strong and courageous, and then at the end of Joshua chapter 1, the people tell Joshua, only be strong and courageous. I think this indicates that probably Joshua was not strong and courageous. And in fact, he was probably not even very good at bluffing. He didn't have a good poker face. Because even the people knew. And they're saying, hey, we will follow you. Just like we followed Moses, we will follow you. Only, please, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Look, this was, this was a young man that was visibly distraught. He was visibly upset. Moses had died. And he was nervous. And he was visibly nervous, it seems. God, of course, knows the heart, but the people don't. Unless he's obviously and manifestly and outward, show, outwardly showing his nervousness. Sometimes you can see how a person is feeling. My boys and I like to watch UFC. And sometimes you watch, even as the fighters come down, you see their mentality. And sometimes, sometimes my boys will know, man, he really looks like he's ready to fight. And you say, yeah, he does. And other times you look and you say, well, that guy looks really like overly confident, like he's not taking this too seriously. So, yeah, you can see, you can read, right? How is someone handling this? How is someone dealing with this? Likewise, I mean, by the time they get to the UFC, their nervousness is behind them. But I bet if you could go back to some of their amateur fights, you'd see some of these guys at early stages of their careers looking a little nervous on their way down. This is see what it seems was happening. 
because Joshua was most likely thinking that it... I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to make it seem as if Joshua was an impious man. He wasn't. Remember, he used to linger in the tent of meeting even after Moses left. Joshua was a pious man. He loved the Lord, but he was just a man. And men often are weak and frail and finite, and sometimes they falter. And Joshua was probably doing the calculations here. They're thinking, Moses is dead. Everybody's looking to me to bring them into the land of Canaan. And I would remind you, what was the land of Canaan full of? Giants. Listen, there is some debate whether the giants were giants because of just some genetic variation or whether they were giants because of demons breeding with human women. It depends on how you understand the Nephilim story back in Genesis chapter 6. But these guys in the land of Canaan were descendants of the Nephilim. They were giants, whatever your understanding of the Nephilim is, and they were possibly half-demonic giants. Alright? But even if they were just normal human giants, (laughs) that's scary. Right? It's like, come on, man, don't be afraid. He's... He, yes, he may be 10 feet tall, but at least he's not a demon. <laughs> Look, he was still 10 feet tall, right? This is a David and Goliath scenario. You've got a bunch of people that have been wandering around the wilderness for like a generation. Going into a place where there are fortified cities like Jericho. And they're, as they go through this land, they're going to meet with giants. Joshua was probably doing the calculations and thinking to himself, everybody's looking to me to get them into this promised land. Moses is dead. The odds are stacked up against us. This makes me nervous. This makes me scared. I'm uneasy about this. And so God is telling him over and over again in chapter 1 here, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And the people are like, please, Joshua, come on, man, we'll line up behind you in battle. But when you get nervous as our leader, it makes us nervous too. What would, what would happen if you were going to battle and the general of the army was like, oh, I don't know, guys. <laughs> right? You'd be like, oh, <laughs> I don't know either. Right? This is why, this is, but you see the opposite is true also. You remember the scene in Braveheart when, when the, the people are all nervous and then William Wallace and his men show up with their faces painted blue. You know, and William Wallace rides up and down in front of the army and gives that speech. When you're an old man dying in your bed, did you give it one chance to come back and fight for your freedom? Right? And everybody, everybody draws their strength and encouragement. So the people are saying, Joshua, please be strong and courageous. But what's happening here theologically is that God is saying there is no need to be scared. Do not be frightened, he says. Do not be dismayed. What did he tell Joshua to do? Not arm yourself. Not go do push-ups. Not get the men to do push-ups. What did he say? Look to me. Look to my law. Walk with me. Walk according to my law. And I will give you success wherever you go. You will prosper when you walk according to the law. 
when you are careful to do the commandments and not turn from them to the right or to the left, you shall cause the people to inherit the land that I swore to Abram. You see what God is doing here? He's taking the ultimate responsibility off Joshua. What is Joshua responsible for? Trusting God. Looking to God. Walking in obedience to God. And what is God responsible for? To give the blessings for obedience that He had promised to do in the Sinai Covenant. To cause the enemies of Israel to flee and scatter before that. God had already promised that He would do that. He's reiterating to Joshua that if you do what I tell you to do, I will cause you to succeed. He is reassuring Joshua by reiterating what he has already said. He's reminding Joshua of the promises for obedience here. This is like way back in Exodus 14 and verse 4 when the people were trapped between the Egyptian army coming after them and the Red Sea. And they said, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? That you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Were they strong and courageous? No. Of course not. They're shaking in their boots. Right? Because they're doing the math... And it seems like, humanly speaking, there is no way for them to get out of this situation. Just like Joshua was doing the math and thinking about leading a traveling band of pilgrims across a river to do battle with fortified cities of giants. But what does Moses say in Exodus 14, in verse 13? Fear not! In other words, do not be frightened or dismayed. In other words, be strong and courageous. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Or in other words, be still and know that I am God. Look to God. Trust God. Don't think that this depends on the arm of flesh to get you across the Red Sea. Don't think that this depends on the arm of flesh to get you into the land of Canaan. The story of Israel all the way from the Exodus into the Promised Land is not a story of a mighty people rescuing themselves and saving themselves. It is a story of a mighty God who continually says, look to me, trust me, I got this. And all the people have to do is walk with Him. And if they will walk with Him, God says, I will cause your enemies to flee before you. So, what we see in this text then, is God reiterating what He has already said, in order to reassure Joshua so that Joshua will not be afraid or dismayed 
but so that he will be strong and courageous and walk with God so that God will follow through on what he has promised to do and bless that obedience with the conquest of Canaan and giving the land that he promised to Abram so many years earlier. That's what we see going on in this text. Now, there are, in a sense, two ways that this applies to us. It's not, of course, a one-to-one correspondence. Listen, if you obey the Lord your God, you know, then you can go invade, you know, the next parish over. You know, let's gather the Christians together and go invade St. John. You know, and he will give us the land. Or, he'll, you know, we can go invade St. Thomas and he will go, like, nothing of the sort, right? And it, it sounds absurd to us, but this is the way that sometimes Christians have thought about conquest and whatnot. That it's one-to-one in terms of, like, just as it was with Joshua, so it is with us. No, not really. But I, I will say this. Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There is still this general principle of the word, generally speaking, that the best way to live is according to the way that God has commanded us to live. His law is designed for human flourishing. Which is why why when you see His law being broken in Genesis, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we saw tonight in uh, 2 Samuel. I don't think it caught my attention tonight. I don't think the king has authority to overrule the avenger of blood uh, taking vengeance for murder. I don't believe that that's in the provisions of God's law. I don't think the king can make a unilateral decision like that. I think that David... This is all, this is all literally just thoughts I had as we were reading, so I may stand corrected. But I think God was the one who said that the avenger of blood can go after the murderer. And there were cities of refuge provided. But if you caught the guy outside of the cities of refuge, then you were to kill him. And that was justice in the land. I don't think that the king had the unilateral right to overrule that. And so you see what a mess it is when he overrules it and brings Absalom home. And we're about to read next week that Absalom now turns around and betrays him. And takes the heart of the people away from him. Look, things fall to shambles when a man takes more than one wife. Like in Genesis. Things fall to shambles when a king disregards the provisions for justice in the land. And acts as if he can overrule what God has said. Things fall to shambles when we don't live according to God's word. You look at Western society right now. And the way that we are departing from what God has said. And things are not getting better in the West. Economically, morally, we are struggling and frankly tanking. It's not going well. 
Lo and behold. <laughs> Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This is still a general principle. Even when our circumstances go bad, for walking not according to the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, sometimes it ends poorly in a temporal sense for us. When we take a moral stand and side with God's word and walk according to that which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But even when the circumstances go poorly, what does Psalm 1 say? In all that he does, he prospers. Look, God's working on you. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Not not his bank account is like a tree planted by streams of water. Not his career is like a tree planted by streams of water. Not his marriage is like a tree planted by streams of water. You see what I'm saying? He is like a tree planted by streams of water. When you live life God's way, you flourish even if your circumstances don't flourish. So there's this general principle here of faithfulness to God's Word leads to, in a sense, blessing and prosperity. Though I hope you can hear I'm not teaching you health, wealth, and all that nonsense, right? But secondly, how this applies to us is that God is good on His Word. Look, He's not telling Joshua anything new in Joshua 1 that he hasn't already said in, Je- in Deuteronomy 28. You realize that? But Joshua's knees started getting weak because he wasn't thinking enough about Deuteronomy 28. If Joshua had had it clear in his mind, look, if I walk with God, if I obey God, if I lead this nation according to God's word, then He will cause our enemies to flee before us. Man would have been strong and courageous. And the children of Israel would have saw Him walking around the camp like a UFC fighter coming down, and they would have been like, boy, He's ready to fight. Instead of being like, only, please, be strong and courageous. Joshua would have had that steel in his spine. Joshua would have had that strength if he had remembered, look, God has promised And God is always good on His Word. What are the things you get afraid of? When are you not strong and courageous? It's when you forget. It is when you forget God's Word. What did Jesus say? I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You ever feel anxious? Like I just was talking about the decline of Western civilization. Oh no, look at how everything's gone. Oh no, look at what's happening economically. Oh no, look at what's happening politically. Oh no, look at what's happening morally. What a world we're bringing our children into. Oh no, I fear for the next generation. Oh, And the anxiety runs rampant. Listen, did you forget? The Holy Spirit is still at work. Did you forget? The church still has a captain. There's still someone at the helm. There's still an architect and founder and builder. And he will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes, as we saw this morning, 
There is a great red dragon who rages. Yes, there are deceptive beasts who call away us and our children from allegiance to the true Messiah in every generation. But amidst it all, Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You remember the, the, the first generation of Israelites were afraid to go into Canaan because we and our little ones will become prey. Doesn't that sound like I'm afraid of the world that I'm bringing my kids into? You know what God says? You're going to die in the wilderness and those children that you said would become prey, I'm going to bring them in. God is good on His Word. He will give the Israelites the land of Canaan. And He will continue to build His church. You're afraid for your little ones? Listen, your little ones might be pillars and buttresses of the church in the next generation. <laughs> just to, just for God to just flex and make your anxiety look like the unfaithful, unbelieving anxiety that it is. He might just take those kids that you were so afraid would succumb to this crumbling, secularizing world. And He might take them and raise them up and use them mightily, in fact more mightily and more powerfully than you. And then us in this generation. And the ones that we thought would be a prey, He's going to build up as living stones. Christ will build His church and the gates of hell and up there. Don't be anxious. Jesus is alive and well. And He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Well, you know, it's not the church I worry about, you say. It's the cancer. It's not the church I worry about. It's my bank account. You know, it's not the church that I worry about. It's the, the stress and the difficulties that I have at work. You don't... You don't know about that. It's the family dynamics. It's whatever. Look, what else has God said? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Look, God is good on His Word. There is nothing happening in your life. Hear me. There is nothing happening in your life that is not going to work together for good. For your good. The cancer is from God. The economic hardship, the financial difficulties is from God. The struggles in marriage from God. Look, I'm not, I'm not relieving sinful people of their sinful responsibility for their sinful actions. We understand that there's a sense in which humans cause these things and not God. God is not the author of sin nor the approver thereof as our confession says. But there is another sense in which God is sovereign over everything that happens. And somehow causes everything that occurs to take place according to His decree in such a way that there's nothing that's out of His control. There's nothing that is unforeseen, unaccounted for. Nothing that's working against His purpose. 
everything, everything is working together for your good. There's a song my wife and I stumbled across last week or the week before. Everybody knows that nothing grows without the rain. Look, you, you may be anxious and complaining about rain in your life, as it were, instead of sunshiny days. You got some thunder and lightning. You got some rain. But this song was everything works out just like it should. Everybody knows nothing grows without the rain. If necessary, the apostle says, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. In other words, you got some trials? You guess what that means? God determined in his sovereignty. It was necessary for you. Sometimes we, sometimes we know it at the moment what's going on and why it's going on and what we're learning. You talk to someone in the midst of something and they tell you, God's teaching me whatever it is through this. Sometimes you talk to someone at the moment and they say, I don't know what God's doing. But you talk to them 10 years later and they go, I see now what God was doing then. Sometimes you talk to someone 40 years later and they say, I don't know why that happened 40 years ago. And we just don't know. And I'm not trying to make light of your suffering. But there's that analogy, you may have heard it before, where someone goes and watches a weaver making a tapestry. And he watches, and for hours and hours and hours, the weaver works. And... He's watching and it just looks like a big jumbled mess, but he thinks at some point it's going to come together. And then the weaver says, it's finished. And the guy observes and says, what do you mean it's finished? And he looks and it just looks like a totally jumbled mess. This side looks like, it looks really terrible. And the weaver says, well, you're looking at the back. And he turns the thing around and you see this beautiful tapestry. Look, at some point, even if it's on the other side of the Jordan, so to speak, after we go on to glory, at some point we look back and we see, we're going to see the truth of Romans 8.28. That for those who love God, all things work together for good. So, look, don't be like Joshua, who was nervous, who was scared, who was anxious, who was worried. It was like he had forgotten what God said. God doesn't give him new revelation in, in Joshua 1. He just reiterates what he said. Look, here's the things you got to do. Get up, go over the Jordan, and keep walking with me. You do that, I'll take care of the rest. Right? That's what I had promised you already in Deuteronomy 28. When Joshua remembers that, makes him strong and courageous. And you see that he walks out obedience in verses 10 to 18. That's basically what's going on in that section. Looks like he's still trembling a bit, but he's still obeying. Right? And we see in the rest of Joshua that he basically is faithful to this task. 
Don't be like Joshua who had forgotten what God said and was worried and anxious and nervous. Look, Christian, be strong and courageous. I just mentioned, I just mentioned two. Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. You could go mine the scriptures for many more, as Peter calls them, great and precious promises. And you could remind yourself, God is good on His Word. Whatever i got to face Monday morning, God is good on His Word. Whatever i got to face when I leave work Monday afternoon and go home, God is good on His Word. What I, whatever i got to face at that next doctor's appointment, God is good on His Word. Whatever i got to face when those bills come in at the end of the month, or my bank statement comes in at the end of the month, God is good on His Word. Whatever i got to face when I have that difficult conversation, God is good on His Word. Because God is good on His Word, He tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Because God is good on His Word, I tell you, be strong and courageous. What has God ever promised that He hasn't done? Look, look all the way back to Genesis 3, where He speaks to the serpent about a seed of the woman. Right? He promised ever since the beginning to send a Messiah. And then look what He did. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That which He promised, He did. And then what does He tell us now? That we are going to be conformed into the image of that Son. And that He will build His church. And that one day He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What has God ever promised that He hasn't done? We should know then that if there are unfulfilled promises, they're only as yet unfulfilled, but God is getting there. Which means we can face anything and everything we got to go through in this life with strength and with courage. Be strong and courageous. Let the watching world, as they tremble in the face of cancer, or financial downturns, or divorce, or family dynamics, or whatever. Let them, as they tremble, let them see Christians like UFC fighters heading down to the cage. Let them say, that guy looks like he's ready to fight. That guy looks like he's strong. That guy looks like he knows what, what, what's going on in life. Because we do. Not that we're strong in ourselves, but that we know that God is always good on His promises. God is always good on His Word. So we can face that stuff. We can face these difficulties. And yes, we lament. We're not cavalier about it. We're not callous towards the suffering of the people around us or impervious to feeling sorrow or grief ourselves. But in it all and through it all, we can face it with strength and with courage because God is always good on His words. So just like Joshua had to have the Word of God reiterated to reassure him, so we often need the Word of God reiterated to us to reassure us. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, He has laid for your faith. 
in His excellent Word. Go there then. Come on Sundays and hear it read and preach, but go into your families and read it together. And remind yourself in your own personal devotions this firm foundation. And live as Christians with strength and with courage. For God is good on His Word.